The international break is almost over as club fixtures resume today around the world. Here in Canada, it was quite a positive one as the women's national team qualified for France 2019 World Cup and the men continue to take step for, t- steps forward both on and off the pitch. My name is Mitchell Tierney and ahead on the podcast today we will talk about all those things plus a little bit about the Canadian Premier League as well. We'll finish up with some Arsenal talk on top of all that. To talk about this with me is a man who has covered both national teams for various outlets, most recently MLSsoccer.com. Gavin Day, thanks for joining the show. Hey, Mitch. Thanks for having me. No worries. And uh, before we look back at the international window that was, next Sunday the 28th is one of the biggest games in world soccer. Footy Talks, along with La Liga, will be hosting a viewing party for the first El Clasico of the season on that day at the Pint Toronto the La Liga trophy will be there, along with many other prizes and perks, including a complimentary brunch and drink ticket. There'll be a Footy Talks panel with myself, Gareth Wheeler of TSN, and Joshua Cloak of The Athletic. And the event is free with an RSPP, so you can do that by heading over to homestand.ca slash events. But speaking of rivalries, there was another one that happened this past week on Wednesday uh, in the final of the CONCACAF Women's Championship. Canada faced the United States, um, which has become a pretty regular occurrence in the finals of CONCACAF Women's Championships in recent years. Um, and another pretty regular occurrence, uh, they lost in that final game, the United States lifting that trophy for the seventh time. Um, and Canada, of course, still hasn't beaten the United States since 2001. So uh, as much as the, there are some positives to take out of this tournament uh, for Canada, kind of the same old ending isn't it yeah you can almost (laughs) you can just about script these things that's it's always how it ends these days canada the u.s it's the same score as as two years ago in houston when the u.s (laughs) also won two nil so uh you know when you look at these events you go okay canada's gonna cruise by the the teams that are there that have qualified this time and then likely show you know a showdown against the u.s the only sort of difference was Mexico and Costa Rica seem to have both taken a step back for this tournament. So it's, I've covered enough of these tournaments. I didn't go this time, but I've covered enough of them where they always say, oh, the gap is getting closer, the gap is getting closer. And show your work, please. It's it's just kind of the same thing. And yeah, I mean, uh, once the U.S. scored two and a half minutes in or whatever it was, kind of had that feeling that that Canada just wasn't going to come back. And this day would be no different than, than any other time. Yeah, just uh, as you said, they scored three minutes in or or I guess two and a half if you're looking by the uh, official game clock. And uh, then they scored at the end, which wasn't wasn't without controversy, of course. Uh, Alex Morgan was pretty decently far offside um, on that last goal. Not that it would have mattered in the end either because Canada only had one shot on target during the duration of the matches. Uh, four shots attempted in total. Offense a bit of an issue for Canada this tournament, which I know sounds surprising considering how many goals they put up, but um, really had trouble breaking down Panama in that semifinals before the second half and Panama got tired. Jamaica were really able to defend them very well, and against the United States, they didn't really have all that much going forward. Um, how big of an issue do you think this is heading into, you know, obviously we saw this was the main issue at the last World Cup as well, was uh, Canada having problems scoring goals. Yeah, I mean, one, it's 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 still 
relying heavily on that number 12. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's not that there's a shortage of talent. There is there is the likes of Becky and Nichelle Prince and, and a, attack-minded players. But, um, you know, they still have yet to, to really develop that consistency against the top teams. Now, there's no problem. You know, you look at, <laughs> you know, Leon and, and Heidema scoring <laughs> for fun against Cuba, but Cuba is a team that is essentially just in its infancy. And, uh, you know, you can score all day long against those teams. But when someone can score a couple games in a row against the likes of U.S., France, Germany, England, uh, you know, then then you'll say that, that, that they're ready. But it's still, uh, you know, par for the course where there's a lot relying on, on Sinclair. And this is, you know... I think going to be, you know, she won't say anything. She always said, look to that next cycle, which this is it. Mm-hmm. And this is a uh, CONCACAF championship for world cup. And then for the next Olympics, and then we'll see what her future is. But um, it's, you know, it seems that the U S is still able to roll off the, the talent that can, that can convert and Canada still needs to make that breakthrough. There were, of course, still some some good performances from young players at this tournament for Canada. You mentioned Jordan Heidma. Of course, those four goals uh, did come against a, a Cuba side that, uh, you know, I hope I hope listeners don't take this the wrong way. But one of their players I noticed had uh, very clearly a steamed on like patch, almost like a marathon runner's patch where their numbers should be. They clearly got put on at the last minute. So um, it was kind of an example of, of maybe some of the funding that went into that national team. Um, um, but Yulia Grosso starting uh, a couple of games and looking solid in that midfield. Nichelle Prince really had a breakout tournament as well. I think she's maybe the main takeaway in terms of the next generation for Canada. She was pretty fantastic. I mean, scored against pretty much everyone, was a threat against the United States, maybe one of Canada's main threats in that match. So uh, that's positive going forward as the team kind of, they, they need that youth to step up in a big way going forward. As 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 you said, this is probably going to be the last World Cup for not only Sinclair, uh, but maybe Sophie Schmidt and uh, Deanna Matheson as well. Absolutely. I mean, it's, uh, you know, the, the benefit of, of some of these players being in the system since they were, you know, 16, 17, 8 years old, years old is that uh, they've had a few cycles already. I mean, you mentioned it's a breakout tournament for Nichelle Prince, but this isn't, you know, as they say, her first rodeo. She's she she's getting that experience early on. And um, and yeah, maybe it is these players do need to almost have that responsibility thrust upon them once these players you just mentioned step aside and um, experience life after that generation that includes, you know, the Schmitz, the Mathesons, the Sinclairs, the Desiree Scotts, who was out. Uh, but yeah, you mentioned that, that Cuban team and, and the, the funding that they have. I mean, it's, you know, for the amount of money that FIFA has in reserve, they could essentially just say any women's program will hand you off X amount of million of dollars. There will be oversight. We want to make sure you spend it in the right places on your women's program and just not funnel it to your men's program. But, uh, you know, FIFA is swimming in money that could easily go <laughs> towards infrastructure for women's football in a hurry. You know, they, they have it sitting there. And, you know, I remember with Seth Blatter said it was like $1.4 billion that he said was in a reserve. Uh, well, there's, there's nothing, frankly, more, you know, relevant to that kind of money than developing the women's game all over the world, which is still slow to develop in huge parts of it. So uh, you look at Europe that's 
that's the, there is some parity now and other teams stepping forward. The Dutch are coming along. The Danes are, you know, England's now really one of those elite teams. And, uh, you know, FIFA, like I just said, could, could say, you know, to CONCACAF sides, other sides that are still developing, we'll give you $10 million. It has to go to the women's game and we're going to be watching you. And if you don't put it in the right places, then you're in trouble. So anyway, but that was just sort of my, like I said, again, that whole thing where it's, you can script these tournaments where it's going to be Canada and the U.S., barring some rare, unforeseen miracle, which obviously didn't happen this time. Well, it didn't quite happen to that extent, but one kind of, uh, maybe not unforeseen miracle, but uh, kind of the surprise of this tournament was, of course, as you mentioned earlier, uh, Costa Rica and Mexico, who are two of the teams that have kind of pushed themselves up into at least that conversation uh, towards the top of CONCACAF. Neither of them even made the semifinals, uh, which is, of course, there's three and a half slots to qualify for the World Cup. So uh, the winners of both semifinals, the winners of the third place game, and then um, the fourth place team plays in a playoff. Uh, Jamaica, they got through um, that group with Canada and Costa Rica. Uh, I was actually very impressed with their game against Canada. They held their line very well, didn't have much going forward but um we're able to hold canada to two goals and really frustrate the canadians and they won on penalties over panama to qualify for their first world cup uh interestingly the men uh on the jamaican side they've only ever qualified for one world cup and that was also in france in 1998 um so these jamaican teams just <laughs> seem to like to go to french world cups yeah that's i i hadn't thought of that until you just mentioned that and it does kind of make sense and i mean i know the jamaican program i'm not sure if they still need it but uh i think it's a member of the marley family that's that's helping to fund that women's program that's sort of what they rely on and uh you know outside of any sort of fifa investment any country that kind of says we're going to go heavy in the women's game you know you can take a small caribbean central american nation say we're going to go heavy on that uh beat a lot of these teams and and you get to qualify for a world cup it's not you know the the pool isn't so deep that that so deep yet that um, that you know there's any sort of worry about that. So any properly funded program with the right vision, with the right direction, uh, could quickly rise up the ranks in Concacaf. And uh, yeah, Costa Rica is this the beginning of the end for them? Was that sort of a, a golden generation, so to speak, of them? And now they sort of revert back to the norm. I don't know. I haven't followed that program too closely. But uh, and Mexico. You know, those youth teams, they, they were doing well. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they beat Canada at the 17 and 20 levels recently. Um, but is something happening at the senior level where there's, you know, as it so often happens with some programs, success at the youth levels, but the funding and the infrastructure isn't there at the senior level? I know Mexico pulled out of the NWSL for their own uh, program, but I guess we'll see what happens in, in two years, whether this was just a, a blip or if they are sort of regressing if there is if there are deeper issues with that program yeah it's interesting i mean it does seem to be going well on the league side of things i've seen some great highlight videos of of some incredible crowds and that sort of thing in in league mx or or whatever the the women's uh league is down there of course you know the crowds aren't everything you need other infrastructure on top of that that actually does the development of players but um you'd hope that mexico uh, is is able to build off of that and uh, that this tournament's just a, a bit of a blip but uh, obviously not the biggest positive for them um 
speaking about the relationship between men's and, and women's national teams as we transition to talking about the men's team, uh, there has been a bit of controversy throughout this uh, throughout this kind of cycle as the men were playing and the women were playing at the same time in terms of the promotion of both teams. Christine Sinclair, of course, tweeting uh, earlier in the week about, um, or earlier in the in the tournament about the fact that um, there hadn't been much promotion on the Canada soccer Twitter account about the women's national team, despite the fact that they're playing in, in a World Cup qualifying event. Um, and it kind of happened again a little bit um, with Mathisoro on Twitter tweeting, uh, how is this, meaning the CONCACAF final, uh, and the semi, the match to qualify for the 2019 World Cup, not on TV in Canada, but a preliminary Nations League match was for the men uh, at CBC Sports, at TSN underscore sports, hashtag show both. And then uh, Canadian midfielder Deanna Matheson quoted that tweet, um, with good point, stranger, uh, then also mentioned CBC and TSN, but uh, perhaps the tweet that is getting the, the most play, at least among uh, Canadian soccer hardcores, is Globe and Mail columnist John Doyle quoting Matheson's tweet and saying, uh, quote, it's a disgrace is what it is. Certain persons have decided that momentum must be behind Canadian men's national team and the Canadian women's national team loses out. Uh, he said, I've written about this and how it's misogynist. Uh, it needs to be said over and over. End tweet. Um, just it's, it's an interesting circumstance, and I think it will continue to uh, maybe play out a little bit as the as the men's team does pick up momentum and, and does pick up some um you know more press but definitely i was a little bit surprised at how uh, how much play this got um especially considering you know um the promotion that these two teams have had over the past couple of years yeah i mean <laughs> i saw that too and i sort of stopped and i sort of went the canadian men are playing in canada Mm-hmm. The CSA is trying to sell tickets to their game in Canada. They're not trying to sell tickets to uh, the games in Texas, this one-off tournament. Yeah. Um, and having done the job, I mean, I'm not going to sort of say too much right now. Having done the job, there is someone with the team who – there is a press officer who can uh, – who, who, you know, does that job. And sure enough, they did. They They put out some content. They promoted it a little bit. Um, as for the TV side of things, it's a little I, – I can't really comment with uh, – without knowing where these rights were because because CONCACAF I know has has tried to oversell things before. It's why CONCACAF Champions League wasn't a lot on, on Canadian TV and it was on Facebook for a while. Um, but I, I remember the last Olympic qualifying cycle in the U.S. for men and nobody came because they were charging – an arm and a leg to get these tickets for just to see, you know, just to get into the stadium. So um, it's easy to sit on your computer and, and uh, you know, type out, Oh, I tried to do this. I tried to do that. But without sort of diving into it, it's, I I can't comment, but um, you know, like I said, when it came to promoting the two things, there's one Twitter page uh, it's Canada Mm -hmm. soccer EN. There's the one in French as well, but when they're trying to sell their own game, that's what they're going to do. And, you know, like I said, there was someone down with the team and they did put out content. It's not that, uh, you know, the women are the afterthought now. It's that the Canadian men were playing in Canada and the Canadian women are playing in the U.S. And they did, like, you know, eventually get some promotion on that. But it's, 
you know, this back and forth, I, I don't know where and how it's going to end because, uh, you know, for attention-wise, the women do get it when it's their moment in the sun. And, um, and, and you know, come next year's Women's World Cup, oh, wait, the Gold Cup will be at the same time. But I still think that um, there will be equal opportunities. And I don't know whether it's uh, splitting up into a Canada soccer men's and women's Twitter page just so that there is not that cross promotion that each one gets their moment. But, um, you know, it's... I, I saw that and I thought this was sort of making a mountain out of a molehill that be just basically because uh, the men were playing in Canada. CSA needed to sell tickets, period. Yeah, and you'd think uh, on top of all that, it'd be a lot easier to broadcast a game from BMO Field considering TSN does that literally every week with Toronto FC than it would be, you know, to to whatever, get the get the rights from Texas and have someone call it from a studio potentially here. Um, and, and TSN sent a camera down. They had a reporter down there and credit to them. Mm-hmm. Um, if anything, if I'm a, a women's player, uh, instead of, you know, wondering why, you know, we're not getting the same attention, that kind of thing, wonder why Canada soccer doesn't go back to hosting one of these qualifiers. They did it for London 2012. Mm-hmm. I think it was a great success. Um, but the past several, uh, have been in Texas and, you know, with so much going on with the North American sports, uh, you know, playoffs, uh, baseball playoffs, hockey, basketball season underway, a women's soccer tournament. Hell, even if it was a men's soccer tournament going on in Texas would not dot the radar. Nobody would mm-hmm. send anybody. And, you know, the men's team got some attention as we've sort of I've been saying ad nauseum um, because they're playing in Canada. So if the women had hosted the tournament, certainly there would be plenty of attention paid to that. So, you know, CSA loves to host the, you know, they get 2026. They just had the Women's World Cup. Um, why not Why not go after one of these qualifiers? We'll see in two years. I can imagine it'll be in the U.S. again. But um, anyway, that's that's just one thought. Maybe they should get a tournament in Canada. Yeah, it'd certainly be nice and, and another way to, uh, as you said, kind of promote this team a little easier. Um, let's move on to the the men's team, though. You were down at BMO Fields uh, for the match between Canada and Dominica. I was there as well, but uh, I was in the stands, so I didn't have quite the same view or replays or anything like that. I mean, I did see the replay of that horrendous old go- own goal that Dominique had scored that was just hilarious, um, which was one of the five goals Canada were able to put in um, that has them third right now in the Nations League standings uh, on goal difference. So a fairly positive result for Canada um at home yeah i mean it was expected uh mm-hmm. it's it's tough to tell at this stage these are the teams that they should be doing this to they did it you know i think it was correct me if i'm wrong <laughs> I, I called that game so i should remember it was two nil in dominica <laughs> and then four nil in canada no anyway I, and it was i think e- it was four nil yeah yeah it was easy and and it's what it mm-hmm. should be these are still pros against maybe not fully professional outfits. And so, um, but it's still tough to tell because there are things that, that guys were trying to do that they would not be trying to pull against a Honduras or a Mexico <laughs> or a U.S. You know, little back heels into traffic that I thought on another day would have been a bad idea. Uh, ill-advised passes, trying to do too much with the ball, that kind of thing. So you reserve judgment. You, 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 this isn't one of those things where, huzzah, they, they, they did it. It's one of those things where, okay, this is what they should have done. Uh, now we wait for, for headier days to come. 
Yeah, perhaps one of those cheeky things that uh, was done during the match, of course, was Lucas Cavallini's Panenka penalty, which was, uh, you know, seemed maybe a little unnecessary considering uh, the the opposition, but it was still very well done. And uh, in general, one of the positives I think Canada can take out of this match is that uh, their strikers continue to score. Uh, Kyle Lahren got a goal. Jonathan David got an early goal as well. So uh, at least the, the right guys are scoring in terms of who you want to be confident going into those important games this summer. Absolutely. And I mean, for in Lahren's case, I, I obviously can't get into his head, but I, it still seemed to me that his, his play was a bit with the handbrake on after that Gold Cup miss against El Salvador a number of years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Just because it looked like he was worried and he, he, he didn't have that same sort of verve that we're used to seeing in him. So um, it's not, you know, he's got a couple goals last month. I think it was two. He's got one this month. He's he's scored at you know over in Turkey when he was in MLS he was scoring so it seems to be that that he uh, seems to me that he's 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 got that in the past and he's one you sort of want and it was amazing it, it sort of speaks to the depth that Canada has attacking wise that Laren started on the bench um, mm-hmm. so I mean I, I think I sort of wrote this for for one of the the pieces that I did was that um, Her, John Herdman has the kind of offensive options and potential they're not there yet they're not even close to there yet there's potential that other coaches would have dreamed about they had better defenders probably mm-hmm. but uh if you could only put you know teams of the past on the back end with teams of the now on the front end um you're in for a a pretty good team yeah, for sure. And there's the team seems to know that there seems to be a, a swagger around this Canadian men's national team that I haven't seen in a long time. And uh, I kind of enjoy, to be honest, uh, Liam Miller boldly stating in a TSN segment this week that um, I think they should be scared when asked about what the rest of CONCACAF should think about the Canadian men's national team. Uh, he later on added, quote, I watched the U.S. against Columbia and I was thinking they're not that much better than us, end quote. Um and uh, and I thought that was really interesting in terms of kind of a team that right now, I mean, it's young. Uh, it is inexperienced, but it believes in itself in a way that we, you know, obviously hasn't been uh, been around since a, a couple of dark days uh, in Honduras. The naivete of youth, huh? <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a team that hasn't faced adversity yet. Um, mm-hmm. We'll see what happens when... When they come up against it, but you know it's 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 what you want to have so long as it's measured and uh, they don't get carried away by these results too early because, like I said, these are the results that they should be getting. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, we'll see what next year's Gold Cup is like. Uh, that should be the the first real test because uh, whether it's World Cup qualifying or more Nations League stuff, I think that would start in September. So the Gold Cup will be the true kind of yardstick and. You know, talent-wise, sure, Canada is up there, but they have been before. I mean, if you look at at some of these rosters, I think the 8-1 game that Canada lost to, there were a lot of domestic-based Honduran players there and guys who were sort of scattered in various places. Um, and yet, they find that whatever it is that, that helps guide them to results, especially at home. And, and a lot of it is, is, is mentally. And you look at, the, you know, Canadian veterans and uh, they might be a little, you know, trigger shy when, uh, 
uh, it comes to going abroad. And, and these young guys come in, they don't have any experience really in the past of, of World Cup qualifiers in these kind of cauldrons. And, uh, but yeah, you like that attitude and, and we'll see what happens when they roll into the, the tougher environments with, with that little bit of swagger that is good so long as it, they don't get carried away. It won't be the toughest of environments, but it will be a little bit of a tough environment uh, in November when they go to St. Kitts and Nevis for uh, probably what's going to be their trickiest match of this CONCACAF uh, Nations League qualifying cycle. Um, it's what, what makes it a little more tricky as well is the fact that the U-20 team gets underway on November 2nd um, for their uh, World Cup qualifying as well, the the CONCACAF U-20 championship. So uh, as we've talked about, there's a number of these teenagers that are now eligible to play for both. Well, of course, they're always eligible to play for the men's national team, but eligible to play for the under-20 team as well. Uh, what kind of balance do you see Canada taking? Because uh, th- there might be some interesting decisions in terms of who they send down and and who they keep up uh, with, the, with the senior team. Yeah, I mean, if... The, the easiest comparison is we can see what, what John did with, with the women's program. And even when there are players who were still under 20 eligible, if they had, you know, quote, un, you know, quote, unquote, graduated to the senior program, they likely wouldn't come back to the, uh, the youth teams. I mean, I remember, I think there was the exception with Jordan Heidema, who after Canada mm-hmm. failed to qualify for the under 20s, she was brought into the under 17s. And I think they didn't want to risk not qualifying for that too. So they wanted to have their, their strongest team. But um, I think you can see potentially a few players who uh, I, you know, like, but like I said, it's tough to tell, but there are a few players who, who could be up with the senior team and not with the, the youth team, the likes of, of Davies, maybe uh, those guys who really have established themselves. I could still see a guy like Tabla, Jonathan David coming down to the 20s, but um, you know it is going to be an interesting kind of balance. And I know Andrew Olivieri and, and John Herdman have, have good chemistry after working together with the women's program, and they'll likely sit down if they're not doing so now and, and, and hammer this out to see who we can get. That's the other challenge is – uh, who can you get in an international window? And for the under twenties, uh, there is that little little international window, but this tournament is over over a longer haul. So um, it's all about balance and seeing who you can get. And there's so many factors into that. And um, yeah, it's going to be an interesting kind of thing. But the the Sugar Boys, uh, when Canada played there at that qualifier a number of years ago, the the pitch at Warner Park with its ant hills and. <laughs> um, you know, potential for hurricane season or for lightning anyway. It wasn't hurricane season really anymore. Um, they, uh, I remember being at that game and, and it was nil-nil and, and St. Kitts was the better team and had the better chances for good portions of it. So that's mm. going to be a fun one. It's going to be really interesting. I don't know how they're going to broadcast that one. I, I'm sure they'll figure out a way, but um, it'll be interesting. Yeah, surely will. Um, let's move on to our second last segment, uh, talking about the Canadian Premier League. Some more news coming out uh, about the league this week. Um, a lot of it on the 11.ca. Um, congrats to them for um, being able to get all this news. Um, the quote uh, that, that kind of stood out the most was the fact that uh, the Canadian Premier League does intend uh, to launch with seven teams. Uh, David Clanahan, the commissioner, saying, uh, quote, we have zeroed in on seven teams, obviously. Uh, I would say it would take a minor miracle, 
but it would take, or I wouldn't say it would take a minor miracle, but it would take something very innovative to happen very qu- quickly. Um, and of course, he's talking about adding an eighth team for 2019. Um, so, I mean, I've always held the opinion that if there's not eight teams ready to go, you you can't obviously force one of these teams to to move ahead a year and and you want to make sure the standards are up so uh well seven teams is going to be awkward it it sounds like this is is the right decision going forward yeah i mean you don't want to force something in when uh it's not ready that's how uh teams don't survive the year kind of thing Mm -hmm. so they've been good with with doing their due diligence and yeah like you were saying i i do like to give credit to to steve sandor and the 11.ca if you're listening to this check out that site uh yes a bit of a shameless plug where i have done some writing for him but he is on top of of everything going on in the game in this country at all levels women's and men's so feel free to check that out anyway um yeah you you go with with what's ready and you don't want to try to shoehorn whether it's owners who may or may not be interested into place and lose interest halfway through the season or, or any of those situations. So they already, you know, had half of one of those things where nothing panned out on the lower mainland of BC and they ended up with Victoria. I think that was a good fit anyway, but yeah, you don't want to at this stage of the game where you have your tryouts, you have your, um, you know, everything looks like it's falling into place. We're still light on some details, but don't try to start a new process with a season, you know, however many months away, whether it's April or what. Yeah, and one of the other things he, he did mention is the potential teams that might be coming in for the league's second season um, as a Kitchener native. Pretty excited about the fact that he mentioned Kitchener, Waterloo, and Cambridge as as one of the most notable ones and as one of the ones that are closest. Um, he also mentioned Saskatchewan and the province of Quebec um, and the Ottawa Fury are still in, in that consideration as well in terms of kind of seeing how this league plays out in the first year and deciding whether it's a it's a move for them to uh, or, or the right decision for them to move over. Um, I've heard that Quebec actually was was pretty close to being that eighth team uh, for this season, but they couldn't quite get it, it right at, at this point. So, so some other interesting markets to add to that list. How cool. I mean, I, I love Quebec City. Um, mm-hmm. I think it would be a great place. I mean, what is there in the summer right now? I guess there's there's a, a Can-Am baseball team. But, uh, you know, if there is any way they could – I don't think they could probably do it. But somehow get a stadium at the Plains of Abraham where you go to a game <laughs> and then you go up La Grande Allée after the game for, uh, you know, for a pint or whatever. That would be really cool. But um, there are the, the cool thing about this is that they know – sort of seem to know – that they're starting small and there are plenty of markets that, that could contribute. I, I, I've called um, a number of league one Ontario games in London and I think London would be a cool spot, but you know, Kitchener, we've seen that support with their uh, PDL team. Uh, I know Rob Nuttenboom's doing a lot of work to, to well up fan support in, in Saskatchewan. So um, it would the fact that there is a team in Halifax all the way to BC is, is really cool. And um, you know, I, you never know what the possibilities are, but naming some of these markets w- would be a lot of fun because there is a an opening in in the summer sporting market in some of these places that there really is nothing nothing there right now. Yeah, exactly, and that's uh, you, you know you, you want to find these markets like this where um, they 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 do have a vacancy for a sports team and they aren't going to uh, necessarily go up against uh, some of the big teams at, at the same time. Um, and another thing that was announced this week officially and have been rumored for some time is the fact that there will be a U Sports draft um, with the K- CanPL 
Interestingly, though, I think a lot of us, or at least when I thought of the draft, I thought it would be um, kind of an end of season or end of career draft. You know, the the players, uh, maybe like the MLS uh, Super Draft, the players who are declaring themselves to go pro. It sounds like this is more of a you know, the, the players won't be giving up their eligibility if they want to go into the Canadian Premier League draft and um, they'll be drafted and then returned to their schools uh, by August 15th, which makes this kind of interesting. And uh, I mean, it could be good for both. I think it's great for U sports because now you have a place where your players can can go play professionally during the, the summers. Well, exactly. And, uh, you know, I think they're sort of aware that this isn't going to be a huge you know, you're not going to be millionaires playing in the Canadian Premier League. Of course, the the rare exception would be the players who transfer out, um, or what have you. But uh, it's it's a great initiative to see them continuing to support, uh, you know, post secondary education. Uh, I think that's just a a great move to uh, to support players who want to pursue that that education and all that. So, um, you know, it's it, we'll see how it sort of the final details are, but. Um, it's, it's also a great way to, uh, you know, that's that pipeline of talent that's right there already. Obviously players who've played five years in Canadian post-secondary system are a bit older than, than others coming out of the academies, but, um, you know, it's that nice stepping stone. I mean, there's so many sports that use sports, they love to promote their basketball and they love to promote their football. Uh, and this is another one where, uh, you can say you have, uh, guys stepping into professional environments where, um, you know, joining some of those sports, like, you know, even volleyball where guys go abroad to, to go play professionally, to make a living essentially, uh, playing the sport they love. And so, yeah, I mean, if, if they always like to say, we all need to, people need to work together to, to grow this game in Canada, to grow the, the national program. And and this is a good sign that, that there is that indication that, um, you know, post-secondary, obviously it doesn't include the college system, but, um, you know, one step at a time. The final uh, exciting thing uh, or exciting bit of news for the Canadian or the Canadian Premier League is the fact that uh, they have signed a, a kit sponsorship deal with Macron. Um, what makes this exciting for me is the fact that you know these kits aren't going to be just template uh, kits as we've seen in in some other leagues, and um, the fact that sometimes uh, companies like Adidas or Nike will get a little lazy with some of their products and. Um, I mean, we've all seen it at some of the recent Euros and, and tournaments like that where uh, a lot of the nation's kits look uh, pretty darn similar. Um, that's one of the things that this league wanted to avoid, and they wanted to make sure they had kits that um, were at least very different from one another. Now, we haven't seen the kits yet, so those could uh, end up being uh, that could end up being a worrying thing. Um, but I think it's a positive at the end of the day. I'd, I'd be surprised if we get any super ugly kits coming out of this. Yeah, you have to be uh, different, and that's that's what I think the sort of angle they're going for, especially with the look at the, the team names themselves. It's it's a different mm. sort of entity than other other leagues. But yeah, with those kits, it's John Molinero's favorite subject. He always loves uh, new kits. I'm kidding, he doesn't. Um, but uh, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what they come out with because yeah, as you mentioned, uh, I remember you know way back the. Uh, what was it? The O2 World Cup where Neon was in and Belgium and, and Nigeria and they all had these just highlighter bright jerseys, but it was all essentially the same design. Um, and uh, yeah, with, with a company that, that prides itself on, on uh, you know, custom do, making them, so to speak, it's, uh, it will be very interesting. People love talking about kits and I, I think it's a great thing for, 
you know, for season ticket holders to get uh, that, that a couple of the teams have announced it where you get the season ticket. I don't know if it's in the particular area or just overall, but you get the free kit with your season ticket. And I think that's just a tremendous promotion. But, um, you know, people will be talking when they see the kits start to come out over the, you know, the coming months, because really time is, is ticking. We are now into sort of full on hockey season and, um, you know, I think they'll want to, to, to get some momentum and get some excitement in the months leading up to, to the first games and the schedule and all that. So, uh, yeah, it's it, it's always sort of a, a sign that this is a real thing when when we're talking about kits and what they may look like. Yeah, for sure. Um, let's move on to our final segment, that being Arsenal. I like to talk to people about their European clubs. Um, when they come on the podcast, it's a good way to to kind of look into Europe uh, from some different perspectives. So um, actually pretty positive results recently for Arsenal. Uh, nine wins on the trot in all competitions. Um, they haven't really beaten any big clubs or anything, but that's an impressive run nonetheless. And uh, they face Leicester City on Monday, looking to make it 10 straight in all competitions. Um, they haven't lost, of course, since that tough start to the season against Chelsea and City. Arguably, they should have beaten Chelsea as well. So um, if you're looking at it purely at a results standpoint, pretty good for Arsenal right now. Yeah, all, you know, all we do is win is what the song says. But um, <laughs> yeah, I mean, when, you, when, when Emery came in, there was the, at least from my point of view, the understanding that it was not going to happen right away. And um, you know, there were those first two tough games against you know the the two tough op- opposition, um, but they've they've put it together. And what's impressed me is that under the last X amount of years under Wenger, is that they would slump against teams they would beat. They would drop points. Um, they would lose to teams they should beat or even tie. Or but they would just not look like they showed up. And to me, that came down to you know the motivation that, that the manager instilled in them. And I know they should have their own motivation, otherwise they shouldn't be playing, but they just didn't... They looked almost at times like they were just sauntering through 90 minutes. What's happening now is is they're beating the teams that they should, and they've won games on the road. And, um, you know, it's 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 a fight and it's a pluck that, um, that I'm finally happy to see in them. You mentioned uh, the opposition hasn't been as strong, but like I just said, it's... Uh, you know, usually they, they have plenty of banana peel games. So uh, I think in early November they play Liverpool. That's going to be a really uh, early test of where they are. I think it's going to be a more mm. adequate test of where they are compared to those uh, first couple games of the season against Man City and Chelsea because they were just so early in the season. But, uh, yeah, we're uh, cautiously optimistic that, that things are, are turning around a little bit in uh, in North London. And I think Arsenal's ahead of Spurs right now. So that's the first standard. And, <laughs> Uh, you know, now it's just a matter of being there at the end of the year and, uh, you know, getting back into uh, playing Tuesdays and Wednesday nights in Europe and instead of Thursdays. Speaking on the more cautious side of that optimism, Unai Emery has kind of uh, tempered expectations a little bit uh, over the international break, saying that they aren't quite where they want to be, uh, despite the recent results. And If you look at maybe some of the underlying numbers on the defensive side, uh, you can see where uh, there might still be some issues cropping up in the future. They have allowed a lot of chances, although, uh, again, a lot of those came in those first two matches against City and Chelsea. That Chelsea game was just wide open and a lot of fun to watch. Um, where do you see them kind of in, in that conversation now? Because it has been 
such an interesting start to the season. Uh, obviously, only eight games in, so uh, there's plenty of the season left to be played. But uh, only two points separating Arsenal from the top, and, and only two points separating um, kind of that top six group. Um, uh, we've seen, obviously, I think United have taken a huge step back this season, so uh, that kind of creates an opening. And Tottenham, they they obviously didn't bring in anybody in this window, and they haven't. They've looked a little shaky as well, so uh, maybe a bit of an opening for Arsenal to to get back in that top four this season. Yeah, I mean the the potential's there, as you mentioned. Defending is. <laughs> Well, it's a it's an experience every every <laughs> single week. You just don't know what's going to show up. But um, they seem to have. I think they've had clean sheets this year, which is, <laughs> if you followed this team, quite the accomplishment. Um, but I mean, you look at the other end of the field, and if if Obama Yang and and Lacazette and and the rest are continuing to score, and obviously that's never a sure thing. They can they can get by. Um, for the time being, while they sort of figure out what they're trying to do defensively. But um, when one of the guys who I've been impressed with, and I never thought I'd be saying this, is Alex Awobi. And he's uh, quietly putting in a, a very good year behind a number of players. And um, just based on sort of his comportment in the past, it's, it's, it's a shock a bit for me. Just uh, But it's been nice to see. I know he's carried that over to playing for Nigeria as well. But... Um, yeah, until, you know, the, the, having so many offensive weapons sort of buys them time to, to figure out their defensive structure because it, it does still need some work. And um, But, you know, when, when you're a team that's a couple points out of first place, that's this is a, a luxury of an argument to have right now. Yeah, like you said, could easily be Manchester United. And, and despite their millions of dollars worth of, of players, the, <laughs> their situation is pretty dire right now. One of the players who's helping that defensive structure so far this season is the fact that they actually have a, a defensive midfielder uh, who's who's playing solidly right now in Uruguayan uh, Lucas Torreira. Um, these stats are always a little questionable because obviously they put a lot of of stats or a lot of uh, importance on one player when it, obviously it's a team effort. But um, in the minutes, uh, five hundred. 48 minutes that Arsenal has played with Lucas Torreira. They've outscored their opponents 20 to 3, and without him, they've been outscored 9 to 10. Um, so, I mean, again, I don't know if that stat fully, you know, is fully fair, but uh, overall, if you watch the games and, and watch the player, it does seem like this is a really big signing for Arsenal and uh, one that can really help this team kind of um, take that step forward defensively. Well, yeah, one thing Arsenal never really did was replace Patrick Vieira. Um, he was essentially the prototype of the defensive midfielder. And, you know, they got Abu Dhabi and he's always the next Vieira and this and that. And, uh, <laughs> just because he was a big, stocky guy and uh, he never lived up to it. He was hurt all the time. So, um, mm -hmm. But, I mean, Torreira is almost a completely different build than Vieira. He's not going to go in hard on a tackle. He's not going to get in a guy's face. In fact, you know, he does the, the theatrical thing a little bit too much for my liking, but um, he's been effective. And you mentioned those stats. I mean, in, in, in baseball, there's there's wins above of replacement, which um, is how much a player is better than just sort of an average replacement in his stead. And so when you're outscoring teams with a player on the field, then when you, you're, you know, it's flipped when he's off, then that's a pretty good indication of, of your use. So I guess also in hockey, there's, there's the old plus minus, but, um, don't get me started on that. <laughs> I won't. <laughs> um, 
but he, you know, he started the season on the bench. They sort of eased him into it, and now he's, you know, he's one of those guys who you almost have to have every every time you line up for for ninety minutes. I think, unfortunately, we still can't have an Arsenal discussion without talking about Arsene Wenger. Uh, you did mention him a little earlier, but um, it, it does seem like he might be ready to get back to work. Finally, he said uh, to expect him to be in a new job before January, and he seems to be attached to a lot of rumors right now. Bayern Munich has been one that's been uh, very heavily linked with, with the struggles that Niko Kovac has had in his early time there there's also been talk of a return to Japan PSG Real Madrid they all seem to be coming up right now my personal favorite rumor though is Manchester United uh, what kind of club do you would you like to see him take over and uh, where do you think uh, or do you think he still has some kind of value to to bring to a club uh, you know after all the years spent at Arsenal I, I don't know why but my gut's telling me that he'll go to where there's a good paycheck at the end of it. Um, <laughs> and uh, that could mean he could end up in China. Yeah, so Qatar, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would not be surprised. I mean, he did, you know, when he came from Arsenal, he was, or when he came to Arsenal, he was Arsene Hu. And like you mentioned, he had come from Japan. And, um, you know, I, it, it's hard to handicap something like this, just given his, his relationship with, with the club that he just left. And, yeah, wouldn't that be something if he ended up at Man United after all the battles they had over the years? And um, anyway, but your guess is as good as mine. I mean, you could put up a world map and we can throw darts at it to see. And we're <laughs> probably just as accurate in our predictions. But yeah, I mean, Bayern sounds like a good option. Any big club, obviously, that's struggling, he'll be up there. But um, if no one comes calling. Uh, you can just see him going just about anywhere. He's he is a worldly man after all. So um, don't put it past him to to surprise us with where he could end up. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to seeing how that one ends up. Uh, but that brings us to the end of our show for this week. Gavin, thanks for joining. Hey, thanks for having me. And next week on the Footy Talks Network, you can expect a special edition of the La Liga show in anticipation of the El Clasico. Until then, thanks for listening and enjoy your weekend.